This is the Ghoul's Guide to Santa Barbara. We mustn't dwell. No, not today. We can't. Not on Rex Manning Day. Oh, I don't... Oh, sorry. Pause. Music. <laughs> um, Rex Manning Day? Gosh, I feel like this is one that maybe I've seen. I thought maybe you guys would get this one. Is it, is it Mean Girls? No. Wait, no, I... Can you give us a hint? I feel like I always do this. Wait, uh-huh. I know it. And then I know it. I know, I know that I don't know. It. I do know. No, Rex Manning Day is. <laughs> Say no more, money more. <laughs> no, I don't know it. Then what? Can you another hint? Um, It stars uh, Liv Tyler. Oh, is it? Uh, it's it's oh, Empire Records. Records. Yes, Empire Records. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so 1995 coming of age comedy drama. Okay. Liv Tyler, Renee Zellweger, Ethan Embry, Maxwell Caulfield is Rex Manning, uh, and Robin Tunney from The Craft is oh, she's also so, in it. I'm so happy when she has like a career item yeah. that wasn't The Craft. <laughs> she was so good. Um, but I anyway, I picked that one because it that popped into my brain this morning when I was getting ready for you guys to come over. Aww. I was like, we mustn't dwell. Not today. Not on podcast recording day. <laughs> Aww, <yay. laughs> And just, yeah, lots of things from that movie live in my brain. Like, um, anytime anybody says, like, what's with whatever today? I think, what's with today today? (laughs) (laughs) Just just lots of dumb stuff. Um, Do you think, okay. Yeah. um, If someone watched it in their, (laughs) like, decade of life (laughs) Uh and didn't see it in 1995, would it be okay? I, I, like, when I I was thinking about that, like, do I think it would hold up today? Uh I think it's probably very of its time but i kind of think it would hold up today do you you think it would hold up to like younger people and older people or just people who are like in our little micro exennial generation for sure our generation i think but maybe the youngsters would enjoy it i don't know so i i saw it but like it wasn't like a big thing for um i feel like it was around the same time as reality bites Oh, it I was later. That movie. It was later than that, I think. Okay. Because reality, but well, but I also like I didn't see it when it came out. I think I saw it later. Oh, really? Because yeah. Reality Bites was like very, <laughs> like Excuse Gen me. X, and I think Bless Reality you, Bites was like a a little like it was a kind of missed Reality Bites. Yeah. See, and I think that's probably like the age difference between yeah. us. Is that like for me, like Empire Records was like. I remember being like, oh, that's kind of for the younger, like, it's a little more optimistic and for the, like, <laughs> younger people than me. This is the Ghoul's Guide to Santa Barbara. <laughs> and I have been... <laughs> still <Jen>. am. <laughs> I have been and I still am Jen. I'm Liz. And I'm Summers. And on today's episode, Summers is going to tell us about a mystery in Carpinteria. <laughs> I am. And I'm so tired already. <laughs> That's our new tagline. I'm tired. I'm tired. This is the Ghoul's Guide to Santa Barbara, and we're so tired. <laughs> so this is The Choir Girl and the Strangler, and it is The Unsolved Murder of Margaret Centony, a Carpinteria mystery. Ooh. Today, I want to tell you about one of Santa Barbara's biggest unsolved murder mysteries, and it dates back to the early 1940s. Okay. This case has been a dark and shameful local secret for generations, casting a shadow over local law enforcement and the county's legal system. And I don't mean that it involved bad people in those systems, Mm -hmm. um, although it also did. (laughs) Oh, no, it involved somebody bad in a state system, not local. Um, But what I mean is it's been a source of frustration for the people in those government systems who wanted to see justice done in this case, Mm -hmm. and they just couldn't make it happen. And so it's a little frustrating. It's a case where everybody knew and knows who the murderer was, but nobody could touch him. Oh, and that's why I've never heard of this. Yeah, I know, right? Um, That's why the murder of Margaret Centony is so interesting, though. It's a story that as recently as 2014 was still weighing heavily on the people and institutions that couldn't get a conviction in the case. The fixation on this case even passed down to the son of a past Santa Barbara County district attorney. He wanted to see it finally resolved as a way to kind of honor his dad's memory. Mm-hmm. But it's somehow not well known overall yeah. now, but it was at the time. 
but it should be because it's an unfair and infuriating case and a young woman got murdered by someone who got away with it and it's also a lot like real life noir fiction like it's it's super like humphrey bogart you know <sighs> like investigating the case or whatever uh-huh. all right I just, I just was like i'm sitting in this recliner <laughs> And uh, for the listeners at home, I'm currently wearing my pajamas, even though I am not, in fact, in my own home. But I am so comfortable. And you started talking, and I was like, oh, this sounds like a good story. I'm just going to close my eyes and take a nap while she tells it. I need you to be funny. I forgot I had to be a part of this. Um, Okay. This section is called Carpinteria, Safest Beach in the World. Hmm. But lots of sharks. <laughs> Carpinteria, the southernmost city in Santa Barbara County, gets called things like a sleepy little town nestled by the beach or a quaint seaside community a lot, which is a cliche, but also a little <laughs> bit true. Carpinteria or carp mm-hmm. is cute and a little outdated looking, which I like. It had a population of just over 13,000 people in 2020. Okay. That seems like a lot. Yeah, but it's like. I mean, UCSB has around 26,000 oh, wow. students, so it's like not even half. What is its population of pot plants? <laughs> right. God, I hated it. It's it a quaint like little pot. city that smells like weed all the time yeah. now. But that's recent. I don't want you to put that in your mental picture or your okay. mental olfactory landscape. Back in the, yeah. <laughs> so back in the 40s, so the time of like this story, it was probably just a skunk more flowers right <laughs> i literally cannot tell the difference between weed and skunks and so like i smell them in our apartment a lot but it's our neighbor oh. <laughs> like smoking weed i also want to be sure to acknowledge that carpenteria was originally a chumash village yep um before this area was colonized by europeans in the early 1940s carpenteria was a collection of coastal neighborhoods with a tiny town vibe there were just around 2,000 people wow in Carpinteria back then. And it wasn't a city yet. It was just an area of unincorporated county land, which is important to know because unincorporated areas like that are under the jurisdiction of the Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Department when it comes to crime. Carp was and is a surf town. Mm-hmm. And during the 20th century, Carp developed a snappy little marketing slogan to attract visitors and new residents. Carpinteria, the safest beach in the world, <laughs> yep. which is so bland and sweet. <laughs> and like, oh my gosh. I love that they could just deem themselves that and nobody is like <laughs> fact checking like, before they go. I know. Right. They're like, the internet isn't here yet. It's like, fine. Says who? I know. Yeah. What's world's the criteria? safest beach. <laughs> <laughs> the community there at that time was friendly and people knew and trusted their neighbors. But then in August of 1942, the tight knit little town was struck by the kind of brutal crime that shocks people so severely it changes the culture of a place a little bit. And this is where we meet Margaret Josephine Centony. Margaret was born on February 25th, 1922, to George and Olive Centony. Olive's maiden name was Pitzer, and I was so excited to like have a woman's full name, finally. Uh-huh. So that's why I'm including it. It's not that important. I don't know. It was just nice to have too much information about a woman in a story for once. Um, George... Margaret's dad was a World War I veteran, and he was born in Santa Barbara, while Olive Pitzer was from Ohio. <laughs> the Centonies lived on Foothill Road in Carpinteria in the 1930s, and they were a big family. The U.S. Census from 1930 lists nine people in their household. Dad, George, Mom, Olive, and seven children. Three boys and four girls, all born by the time Olive was 38 years old. That's Which, too many kids. I know. It's, <sighs> it's, yeah. I guess it's not too unusual for back then, but it made me feel so overwhelmed to see that. I was like, oh, honey. Yeah. <sighs> it's like this <laughs> when you see those uh, stickers on people's cars with all the all the little <laughs> kids and somebody writes in the desk like, stay off her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, I have nothing against big families. I, th- Yeah. Just not for me. <laughs> yeah. Not for me either. George and his older sons were listed in the census as laborers, and later on, George worked as a custodian to support his family. By 1940, the Centony household was much smaller as the older children had moved out. Margaret and her sister Ethel, who was just one year older than Margaret, I know, were still at home with their parents in 1940. By 1942, when Margaret was 20 years old, she was the only one of her siblings left at home with mom and dad. And it's wartime then. It is the same year as the Galita... Elwood. Oh, it's mm-hmm. the same year as the shelling as the, as the Elwood. Yeah, the Elwood bombardment. bombardment. Uh huh. Um, and the Battle of Los Angeles as well. That's right. 
it's wartime, so there are all kinds of things going on. Like, you know, you had to have blackout curtains drawn after a certain time at oh, night. Gosh. And Margaret is the only one there to help her parents with all the new war efforts. In a 2014 Santa Barbara Independent article, Barney... Was she eating? <laughs> was she clearing her plate every night to help oh. with the war effort? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> A 2014 Santa Barbara Independent article describes Margaret as a quiet girl who sang in the church choir and not one to run off to a party or with a boyfriend. I could only find a couple of photos of Margaret online, but those photos and quite a few others relevant to this case are on our Instagram oh, and our see. other social media account, which you can find at Ghoul's Guide to SB. The photos of Margaret are in black and white, but the May 1951 issue of Daring Detective magazine <laughs> mentioned repeatedly she was a redhead. Oh. Margaret had graduated from Carpinteria Union High School two years before, and in 1942, she had a part-time job as a companion for an elderly friend, Aww. which I think is very sweet. It is. She would stay overnight at the friend's house to make sure she was okay. In just a month, though, Margaret was due to start a new job as a teacher. Margaret left home on the night of August 28th, 1942, which was a Friday night, to head to her job, which was close by. It should have been an ordinary night for Margaret, but an hour later, the friend who employed her called her parents at home and asked, where's Peggy? Oh, no. According to Daring Detective, Margaret's dad said he'd go find her, and he started walking her route to work, and he went in the drugstore to see if she was there, and when he arrived at the elderly friend's house, the two set out together to walk the neighborhood looking for Margaret. So I think the friend oh. was probably not that elderly, but... <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, wait, Margaret is how old at the time? 20. 20. Oh. Um... And now we have Jack Ross, officer in charge of the case. The Santa Barbara County Sheriff in 1942 was named James Ross, and his son John, or Jack Ross, was under sheriff. I've never understood that. I know. <laughs> but go on. <laughs> and then sometimes people are just named Jack, and it's like, yes. oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Sorry. <laughs> under sheriff just means a deputy, but often it's like the top deputy, like the one who would act if the sheriff wasn't around. Okay. To right under the sheriff. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. <laughs> but sometimes it's not. So that's who Jack Ross was, second in command to his sheriff dad. Jack was the officer tasked with finding Margaret when her disappearance was reported. And her parents, um, there wasn't any of that, like, do we have to wait 24 hours or whatever? Uh -huh. Like, her dad got home and was like, she is missing. Yeah. And she never goes anywhere. So we need your help. Like, she does not have boyfriends Aww. and like, whatever. So... Jack was the officer tasked with finding Margaret when her disappearance was reported. And as I said, they reported it right away, partly because of that description we just heard of her. She was not a partier. She didn't yeah. have a boyfriend anybody knew about. And Jack sent out radio and teletype bulletins to every place he could think of in the area. What's teletype? Yeah, I have this like, <laughs> okay. I have a note. What the hell is a teletype oh, bulletin? Do you, <laughs> uh, you want to know? Yes. Okay. Here's your trivia tangent. Oh boy. I'm picturing like a newsroom. Like, that's basically oh, what it is. Is it? Teletype machines were like mechanical printers or typewriters that automatically typed up whatever data you communicated over, like whatever form of communication, like a telegraph line or a phone line. Huh. The first teletype or TTY machines, which were also called teleprinters, worked over telegraph lines. Okay. They were invented so telegraph operators didn't have to sit there and like be like, hey. Oh, got it. <laughs> like, okay. I'm picturing like a little strip of paper is... Um, I don't know. Yeah, that's like, what I... I think like those, were, those were probably the very <laughs> first ones. I think that's a ticker ones. tape. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I think that's like a description of what is produced as huh. the ticker tape. But like, I think probably teleprinters did look like that at first. But I think by this time it was that stupid like dot matrix like paper with the holes <laughs> on the side. Yes. In the 1940s, teletype machines usually typed out communications sent as sound data over telephone lines. Hmm. So like kind of like a modem, but it printed to paper. Huh. And they used a system known as telegraphy or teleprinter exchange to transmit messages over long distances. <laughs> cool. And it was important. It was like basically like, you know, the equivalent of having a fax or something mm -hmm. like. And it was great for law enforcement because they could get messages to each other quickly and very efficiently. It was an early, early form of electronic communication predating the Internet and all of our modern digital messaging systems. So the point is Jack Ross's department had some useful technology that let them get information and send it quickly. Mm -hmm. They didn't have a whole lot of manpower. I couldn't find numbers on how many staff members they had, but um, it would have been great if, figuratively speaking, the calls hadn't been coming from pretty close to inside the house. Oh, no. And that is foreshadowing. 
Jack felt like he needed some backup to help him find Margaret, and it needed to be backup he trusted. Jack Ross felt like he needed some backup to help him find Margaret, and it needed to be backup he trusted. A thorough search hadn't helped find any evidence of where she was. And lots of local people, including 40 local Boy Scouts, wanted to participate in further search parties, which was great, but also increased the burden of workload and coordination on Jack's team. So Jack asked a California Highway Patrol, CHP, officer, Leonard Kirks, to help him. Kirks lived right there in Carpinteria, and he knew the town really well. He was like, hey, uh, how about you just handle the Boy Scouts? (laughs) (laughs) Right. I'm going to put you in charge of volunteers. Managing all the kids. Yeah. Yeah. For people who don't know, it's not super unusual. Like all the local law enforcement agencies in Santa Barbara County, including CHP, uh, work together on emergency response. Yeah. Um, So it's not unusual. But Leonard Kirks wasn't brought in because of any expertise he had. He had never helped investigate a murder. And he'd never been present at a crime scene as an investigator. He was a traffic cop. Leonard Kirks was brought in because he and Jack Ross were friends. Mm. But he did have a few qualifications that made him seem like a great choice to bring in on the case. He was like well thought of. He knew Carp, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Is he the bad guy? <laughs> Shh. Okay. <laughs> so we know Leonard Kirks was a CHP officer and that he was inexperienced in detective work or crime scene processing. And we know he knew Carp well, but what else did we know about him? He was born in Texas in 1906, so at this time he's 36 years old. Mm -hmm. About the same age as his friend, Jack Ross. He had gone to college. He was married to a local woman, Evelyn, and he and Evelyn lived with Evelyn's father, Letsy Beckstead, which is a great name. (laughs) Letsy Beckstead. In Carp. And uh, they lived on sort of agricultural land that Beckstead owned. Leonard and Evelyn had a six-year-old son. Leonard was described as a handsome, strapping man who knew everyone in Carpinteria, according to a 2007 issue of Carpinteria magazine. And he was also a helper in Boy Scout activities <laughs> and a member of the Lions Club. So he would have been perfect, Jen, for the... Perfect to manage the Boy Scout. Yeah. yeah. The Carpinteria magazine article, the wording that they use is almost directly lifted out of a 1951 Time article. So I'm going to read you the Time article okay. part of that. It was odd how clumsy a first-rate state highway cop could be when it came to investigating a murder. Kirk's a handsome, strapping fellow, knew everybody in Carpinteria where his father had been pastor of the community church. Patrolman Kirk's was himself a good churchman, the father of a six-year-old youngster, a helper in Boy Scout activities, and member of the Lions Club. He was pretty bright, too, a Vanderbilt <laughs> University grad- graduate, letterman in football and basketball. Who cares? But they time thought yeah. it was good. This is like, you know, I mean, this is not a unique situation where you have like nepotism <laughs> and like people that participate in socially acceptable sporting things. And I'm just going to go out on a limb and assume these guys are all white. And oh, yeah. Like, oh, gee, I feel like, you know, yeah. Yeah. Time continues. He had been top man in his examination for the California State Highway Patrol. The next day, while more search parties formed and scoured carp, Margaret's body was discovered in the hills of Toro Canyon on a remote road, uh, on a remote road, on a property owned by Leopold Stokowski. Toro Canyon is a little north of carp. Wait, that's not, isn't there a like famous composer or is that leopold i'm gonna get there (laughs) (laughs) um it's in a wealthy area and leopold stokowski was a wealthy man so he didn't find margaret but his caretaker did Mm. leopold stokowski was a famous conductor oh he's in his 60s in 1942 and i really wanted to trick you into thinking he killed margaret but he didn't (laughs) He just owned some land with a rarely used sort of isolated dirt road on it that the killer found useful for dumping a body next to. And other fun fact, Leopold. Oh, go ahead. You might be saying this. (laughs) Leopold Stokowski was married to Gloria Vanderbilt and had children with her before she married Anderson Cooper's dad. Oh, he is the conductor, I believe, in Fantasia. That's awesome. Because he's featured in the like they they show him walk out. Oh, really? Gosh, I can't remember that movie. When she was found, Margaret was dressed in a red floral patterned gown, and it was clear right away that she had been strangled to death. Gown? It said gown. I think it just meant dress. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because um, I was like, wait, she wasn't like going anywhere fancy, right? I think that the implication is she wouldn't have been wearing a red dress. 
to work anyway. So, like, she wasn't going to work. Huh. Like, she was dressed a little fancy. Not, like, ball gown fancy, but, like, she was, like, dressed for a nice date, I think. Okay. Um, Huh. There were ligature marks on her neck, which one newspaper article reported as wire marks. Oh. Margaret had been beaten and her skull was split open, but investigators later determined those injuries had happened after she died. Oh, gosh. Oh, that's gruesome. Mm-hmm. Her neck was broken by the strangling. <gasps> oh, my gosh. Which, that's violent. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, like overkill. Yeah. Literally. A few items of Margaret's clothing were missing. One shoe, her tweed coat that people thought she was wearing at the mm-hmm. time, and her purse. And these items were never found. Whoa. But wait. It gets worse. Oh, Oh, no. When he got to the scene, Jack Ross noted a set of footprints near Margaret's body. And it looked to him like the person who left the footprints was a decently large man. Mm -hmm. And there were tire tracks that had a distinctive squeegee pattern. That's what it was called in like every source. Which, of course, Ross noted. And in particular, he was glad to see that the tire tracks had that unusual sort of print. And um, no place else said this but Daring Detective magazine, which I bought a Uh copy of the of the um 1951 issue that talks about her um her murder it's called the case of the strangled choir girl and we will have photos of the magazine pages on our website at ghoulsguidetosb.com and on our social media at ghoulsguidetosb okay in daring detective it says that the tire marks were significant because three of the tires were the same and one was different oh that's a good clue right So Jack Ross notes these two key pieces of evidence, the footprints and the tire tracks. Mm -hmm. And he's like excited that the tire tracks had an unusual sort of print. So I looked into tire tracks. (laughs) You can tell a lot from them. And they're more complicated than I knew of. It's not like where you just like roll a cookie cutter like (laughs) thing and then match it to the tires all the time. I mean, that's what you want also you want to identify a particular car yeah but the way you drive affects how your tire pattern looks and so i found a website that teaches you how to determine how a car was being driven just by looking at the tire prints (laughs) i didn't really understand the science of it all but in general tire tracks can tell investigators things about how a crime or accident occurred it's not just matching up to Mm -hmm. identify the car so it could tell them a little bit more about the scene but that's enough about tire tracks (laughs) back to toro canyon and our crime scene Jack Ross, we know, is an undersheriff, and his dad is a sheriff, so Jack knows some things about sheriffing. Um, And he, so nepotism, yes, but it was more, I think, like the Rosses were in the business of being sheriff, and Jack was a good lawman or whatever. He was, from years and years before, there are photos of him, like, with an enormous, like, drug bust thing or whatever, you know, or, like, guns that he seized and... So he was he was good at his job, mostly. I think it's really common in like policing, especially yeah. to yeah. just have like family legacy. Of- yeah, totally. He leaves his buddy Leonard Kirk's CHP officer at the scene to safeguard these crucial pieces of evidence: Uh-oh. the footprints and the distinctive tire patterns uh-huh. in the dirt. While he goes to fetch some experts to document the evidence, so when there is. A body found or there's a death where foul play is suspected that's one of several occurrences that requires you to tell the coroner as soon as you know oh. when you're an officer and so some sources said that jack left the scene like in his car to go get the coroner but he didn't he just went to his car which is a little ways away because leonard suggested parking it a little ways away so it didn't get scratched up by the brush okay around the little tiny road um, and he just radioed. He needed to get the coroner there, who was legally necessary, and a technician to process the evidence, which basically meant take photos of it. Uh-huh. And like, I mean, this was the, the times when like you couldn't even really take color photos unless there was a lot of light. Like it wasn't high tech. Hmm. And Jack gives Leonard instructions to not mess up those specific uh, pieces of evidence. Wait, does he mess them up? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so when Jack gets back from his car where he'd radioed, Guess who was wandering around scuffing out all the footprints at the Man. crime scene? Leonard freaking Kirks. Not Leopold Stethkowski. <laughs> no. He probably didn't even know at that point. He right. was probably like busy with Fantasia or whatever. <laughs> I don't know when Fantasia came out. 
Jack was obviously like angry, but instead of sending Leonard home, he just decided like, oh, this is a good man who messed up and blamed his inexperience because he'd never been on a crime scene Uh before. And he was just like, stop doing that. Oh my gosh. So did Leonard stop? No. No. (laughs) He walked over to the distinctive squeegee pattern tire tracks and stepped on them. (gasps) Like just right in front of Jack. And as Jack's experts investigate this crime scene, they discover unusual marks on Margaret's leg and foot. And they realize, like, okay, at the time, in the the cars of around that time, your trunk wasn't, like, carpeted or whatever. It was just, like, this metal compartment. And then it had a rubber mat, like a corrugated-type rubber mat. And um, so they think, like, oh, the stuff on her leg is, like, in sort of stripes so it's probably from the mat in a trunk mm-hmm. and she was probably brought here in this car that we now know not a lot about because leonard has stepped on all of the evidence <laughs> yeah and so they start to wonder if she was killed somewhere else and moved to the stakowski estate and jack ross who is not an idiot later he was sheriff after his dad retired by the way jack does eventually realize his friend leonard wasn't just being hapless and clumsy when he tampered with the evidence and jack is going to turn on leonard mm-hmm once his suspicions solidify, but his suspicions do take kind of a long time to solidify. <laughs> and there are maybe reasons for that, but it took years. And we oh. don't know exactly when Jack figured it out, but he probably found, like started thinking it at this point. Yeah. Although a 1951 article in Time says, the two of them worked together on the Sentinel murder until they ran out of hunches. Hmm. <laughs> So then, or came up with a very strong one. He didn't really want to <laughs> go down. Oh man! That same article in Time continues. Then one night, under Sheriff Ross's telephone rang. A scared and breathless carpenteria liquor dealer had something to tell him. It was a cop that did the murder. I know which one. It was Leonard Kirks. Kirks had bought a pint of whiskey and two cokes from him on the afternoon of the day Margaret disappeared. On the fourth day after the body was found, he comes back to my store, the liquor man went on. He walks up and He's down. He's like, here's one of those cokes back. Turned out I didn't need it. Oh, no. <laughs> he walks up and down, nervous as a cat while I'm serving the other customer. Then when the other guy's gone out, Kirk said that the tracks near the body look just like the tread of his car tires. <sighs> so he needs an alibi. And he tries to get me to say I sold him the liquor at 730 on the night of the murder. <gasps> that isn't Gosh. true. This guy's the worst at alibis. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hold on to your butt because it's going to continue in that way. Then, according to Time, Jack Ross kept the news under his tan Stetson and went to work. Hmm. (sighs) In the following days, Jack found out that Leonard had been sort of attempting to convince more people that he'd definitely been in certain places around town at key times. Freaking dummy. Okay, sorry. Go on. (laughs) I just, I love, I love a good thing where like someone confides in someone and and then that person immediately is like hey yo cops uh so i know i wish i could do like an old-timey accent like (laughs) and i just can't but you see sir (laughs) so please just like imagine one in not jen's but a different one (laughs) like he was possibly trying to establish alibis Mm -hmm. then a tip from the public came in a gray sedan possibly a 1939 model had been spotted near the remote site the day after Margaret disappeared. Guess who owned a similar car? (gasps) Kirk's. Yeah, Leonard Kirk's. Oh, man. What a surprise. And it turned out Uh. that Leonard was, the same day that Margaret's body was found, having his car painted green. Oh, what? Later the day. Including the interior of the trunk. (laughs) This guy is the stupid worst go on our tagline should be these people are the worst at murder (laughs) i know he's not even sending his best person gosh and leonard said he didn't have his trunk floor mat anymore oh because he randomly gave it away uh, to a charity drive (sighs) i am just already angry because this is apparently unsolved which means this dummy Uh never gets in trouble for it sorry go on so the charity drive does make sense because of the war there was there were like a lot of like give us all your junk stuff Please, you metal though. You guys, if we're ever gonna defeat the <laughs> Germans, we're gonna need a, all your trunk mats. Yeah. I mean, they're rubber. I get it. You can melt it down and <sighs> use it again. But I don't know. I'm mad. We're gonna storm, uh, storm the beaches <laughs> with. Well, like, maybe they made the mats. made the boats out of it. Weren't they inflatable boats? 
Uh-huh. You sewed a bunch of rubber trunk mats together. Well, you together. melt them and you, make, you inflate them and make them. <laughs> oh my God. I know I'm supposed to say yes and you, but that does make sense. Uh, yeah, collecting items for the war effort. At this point, the working theory became that Leonard Kirks might have killed Margaret. <laughs> oh my God. You think? You guys, um, I'm beginning to think that maybe Leonard was involved. The guy who painted his car got rid of his uh, trunk mat I know. looking for alibis. Oh, yeah, it's, it's a lot. So um, at this point, the working theory became that Leonard Kirk might have killed Margaret when she resisted his advances oh. and threatened to reveal his secrets to his wife. What was his secrets? Oh, that just that he was dating around? Yeah, hmm. I think. And that Leonard and Margaret met because she was his son's babysitter. Oh. So he knew her. Uh-huh. But Jack did know that he knew her. And he saw that as a plus because Jack didn't know her and only had like one of the couple photos. And it was like, if Leonard sees her, he'll be like, hey, Peggy. Yeah. Nobody was like, oh, hey, wait, she was his son's babysitter. Nope. They were not. No, uh. Gosh. Because it was like the honorable, like, yep. dude thing. And I don't know. I didn't put this into the story, but there was a um, like a USO or something um, center in CARP that Margaret volunteered at sometimes. And so like there were a lot of um, military men there, mm-hmm. young military men. Mm-hmm. And um, one of them had been talking to her. And so like they did investigate that guy. Oh. But you can't find his name anywhere daring detective gives him a fake name like they all just totally protect it because he was an honorable man and he didn't do it and whatever and like even his commanding officers were like well we you know we think he's like a good boy scout kind of guy or whatever (laughs) Uh and like just totally protected him but they did investigate it their policing procedures at the time were well i asked him and he said he totally didn't do it yeah and he's a good guy and he's a good guy yeah and like he had like a clergyman testify for him or whatever. And the clergy guy was like, um, I don't know how to say this, but he was boning a very different girl oh. in Santa Barbara at the time. <laughs> oh and like, that's not great, but he didn't kill anybody. Yeah. So the thing is all Jack Ross had were these circumstantial bits of evidence and they couldn't quite put them together and make any, cho- any sort of charges stick. <laughs> we have all these puzzle pieces that clearly have the same picture on them. <laughs> Right, but it's just like it's circumstantial evidence. You yeah. can't convict oh, someone can't on that. Together. Can't even charge them on it. So that's how it stays stalled for eight years. But it was 1942, right? So mm-hmm. Pearl Harbor it happened like the end of 1941, and all the you know we talked about it in a different episode. Galita in World War Two, <laughs> and so Jack and Leonard ended up both involved, kind of in the war effort. Like Jack actually fought, and Leonard. Like, sort of legged it up to Alaska and volunteered with the Red Cross. Huh. I don't know what they were doing in Alaska. But I think he just wanted to be, like, out of town. They were probably, like, collecting trunk <laughs> Right? Man. For the war effort. Yeah. So, Jack was commended for his service in World War II. <laughs> I just imagine. It's like a... It's like a... Um, donation spot and uh-huh. everyone's just bringing in like things bodies that, all no, no, things that are like slightly <laughs> tied to murders <laughs> i have this knife set laying around oh gosh okay so the thing is that um charity drive had happened a ways before so like he clearly didn't give it to them he clearly disposed of it but he was like oh that t-, you know huh. and then like by then they'd I already see. processed everything Dang. anyway um, that's like when I show up in something new and my husband and I'm like, oh, no, I've, I've had this forever. I've had it for a while. <laughs> OK, so he, Jack did survive the war and he comes back to Santa Barbara and he goes comes back to his job as under sheriff in 1945. Mm-hmm. And the investigation sort of continues after World War Two, but nothing moves forward until 1950, by which time Jack is sheriff. He started being sheriff in 1947. OK. So Jack is more and more certain his friend Leonard killed Margaret. But like it's still such circumstantial evidence that he can't do much, but it's like his thing. Yeah. That he's it drives him and he he's decided, like, even though the whole like I don't know, culture of like men being pals and hiding things Bro-toed. from each other. Yeah. Yeah. Like Jack takes responsibility and he feels terrible about it and he just like has to solve this case and make it move forward. 
but it's hard also because Leonard is a law enforcement officer mm-hmm. and he's very well respected. His dad was pastor, like I said. Like so, they felt like they had to have like really good evidence yeah. to make yeah, it work. Like, he's like Please he's see. CHP. I'm yeah. police. It's gonna be a whole thing. Yeah, exactly. Like, look at the Golden State Killer. Yeah, yeah exactly. He, he was in law enforcement, and how I long know. did it take to get him? Yeah, forever. Yeah. So, um, then all of a sudden. A carpenteria woman complains to police that Leonard Kirk's had an inappropriately sexual conversation with her eight-year-old son. Oh. And Leonard is arrested for child molestation. <gasps> oh, my gosh. And Jack Ross sees his chance. And I don't know why. he. I think he was like, well, he's in custody. And so, like, maybe we can, like, break in. Yeah. Or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Squeeze him. <laughs> <laughs> I should have done that in my old time yet. Make him sing. Uh, sing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and at the same time, a friend of Margaret's decides to stand up for her. Dorothy Colleen Rosebro, married name Egan, was 17 at the time of the murder. And she steps forward with what everyone on the case sees as like their bombshell revelation. Mm-hmm. She says she saw Margaret getting into Leonard's car the night that she disappeared. Eight years later? I was going to say. And I just thought I'd hang on to that. Yeah, right. For eight years. Sorry, not to blame her. No, I mean, okay. I mean a little bit. A just little. FYI, if you guys see me leave with someone and then later I'm murdered, don't wait eight years. <laughs> I'm just gonna call the police before you're murdered and be like, <laughs> Jen is with this person. <laughs> like, yeah, I do that with my friends. Like, I have map locations shared with a whole mess of them, and like, well, we this we won't be unsolved murders because you can just look at. Uh, Texts. I've only been in an Uber once, and I texted you guys immediately. I'm in an Uber. Here's what the guy looks exactly. like in case I die. Yeah. <laughs> Time Magazine quotes Dorothy's testimony very simply. It was Mr. Kirk's gray car. She said <laughs> yes. So Leonard Kirk's finally faces charges. Wow. And an auto repair man, actually, auto repair men give testimony too. One testifies that Leonard had asked him to falsify information about the absence <gasps> of a mat. In the back of his car this to say guy. it was it was already gone uh-huh. when he had worked on the car previously. Yeah. Another, Charles Boverson, who had since become a sheriff's <laughs> deputy, says Leonard insisted on having the inside of the trunk compartment painted, like I said, despite it being entirely unnecessary mm. and weird to do that. <laughs> and he was like, people don't do that, yeah. dude. Like, And at some point it comes out that Leonard had used a pressurized air hose to clean out the trunk. Like blow out all the you yeah. know any debris before mm-hmm. the evidence. Yeah, and so his car. This it happened. This murder happened in. So this murder happened in 1942. Uh-huh. His car was a 1939. You don't need to get your car painted. It's only that years soon. old. Yeah, three yeah. years later. And like, <sighs> I just <laughs> my brain just keeps going uh, like an Andor in what we do in the shadows. This fucking guy. Yes, <laughs> that's who Leonard is. <laughs> And then time says another witness, an aged Italian truck farmer, swore to watching. Oh, wait, wait, <laughs> you're gonna we're gonna have to talk about truck farmer. I know. I was like, did he grow trucks? <laughs> yeah, that's. <laughs> I think it just means like, look, here he is here, and he's like in his truck. Oh. <laughs> this is my newest truck I grew. <laughs> I farm it. <laughs> I think it just means he was like a really small farmer, and he uh, like hauled things in his truck. Anyway, there was farmland adjacent to Leonard's father-in-law, Letsy Beckstead's land. So farmers recognized Leonard and regularly saw him driving in and out of that area. All right. So you said they lived on Foothill. And if I am remembering correctly. No, foot- they. Sorry. They did live on Foothill, but then later they were on Olive. Oh, like okay. at the time of the murder. Like okay. down in town. Yeah. And I don't know where Letsy Beckstead's land was. Okay. Because Foothill runs kind of the back yeah along yeah all the, the way through uh, yeah sorry yeah this is just how my brain along the foothills yeah <laughs> at the base of the foothills yeah and there's ag land in right. the northern end of carpentry that butts up against that so that's kind of in my brain where i'm picturing because also the lions oh lions park yeah lions park is back there also right off of foothill um Hopefully by the time we release this episode, I will have figured out where it is and put it on the map. But like, I don't know exactly. Yeah, where all so this I'm happens. just like giving you an insight into how my brain is picturing visually <laughs> this scenario playing out. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be there with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so people regularly saw him drive in and out and everybody knew him. So it was like, you know, hey, there's Leonard. Yeah. 
Um, was Margaret's friend as a surprise witness at the trial, which happened in 1951 because of the delay from the war, which made me think, like, how many murders just didn't get solved during the war and right after, you know, or like, I don't know. Or how many murders didn't happen because all the men were off fighting in the war? Yeah, maybe it evened out. Huh. And then how much domestic violence happened when they all came back with untreated PTSD? (sighs) Yeah. A lot. I think, I'm sorry. Um, you said you wanted me to be funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, my grandpa came back with PTSD, and then um, my grandparents got divorced immediately. Oh, so wow. I, yeah. I mean, not immediately, but right after that. Uh-huh. War is terrible. I mean, I think just he was terrible anyway, but like, you know, yeah, I, I think it probably was a nightmare for a lot of women. Um, with Margaret's friend as a surprise witness at the trial. Which happened in 1951. A jury finds Leonard guilty. Oh. Um, and sends him to prison for five years Ugh. for second degree murder. And I don't know why they went with second degree. So mm-hmm. don't ask me. I don't have any How idea. Do you, sorry. How do you convict someone of second degree murder when, when the person was clearly violently strangled? Right. Don't know. There's like the intent thing, right? I don't know. Yeah. Um. I could know because I could have read the whole case. It's online, but I did not have time. So, uh, no, I just yeah. put that. I just I don't put know. the wire around her neck for decoration. Oh, yeah. Gosh. <laughs> or like, I see it as more oh, like she provoked like, me or yeah, something. Yeah, or like Ugh. crime of passion. Yep. Oh, yeah. God. Wasn't planned ahead of time and maybe like, Our yeah. Justice system. He was a good man and yeah. she sassed him or whatever. I don't know. Well, she did say no to the sex. Gosh, so. right? <laughs> I mean, Five we don't years. know at all what happened. So, yeah. like, um, daring detective says that there wasn't definite evidence of sex or, like, a sexual attack. Mm-hmm. But um, it was also, like, a magazine from the 50s and no place else even mentioned, like, any evidence from the autopsy of her oh. body, you know, except for, yeah. like, the murder. There was... Because that was one of my questions when I wrote this at first. I was like, but was she raped? Yeah. But yeah. it was just, there was no definite evidence. Gotcha. So there was... Or, a- I mean, just did it never get that far? Like, did he make right. advances and she right. said no, and then he got mad and right. killed her? There was a lot of national press coverage for the case during the trial. And this photo feature in Life magazine has the weirdest pictures. I'll put the, we'll put them on the the um instagram there's really strange pictures of like jack looming behind leonard or whatever (laughs) and there's like this really strange note underneath one of the photos in the article saying that jack hung out and joked around with leonard in his cell during the trial and that's really weird to me it's weird and i don't know what to make of that at all but except maybe it was just like a cultural thing like he's still my friend and like this isn't personal or whatever wow. like we're still pals i don't know i don't I know i mean maybe well i was gonna say maybe he was like trying to still see if he could get him to like admit oh. to something but yeah, if at maybe. that point he had already been convicted and sentenced then hmm. what's the point yeah Weird. um oh no it was during the trial mm-hmm. that jack was joking around with him oh. in the cell um so i don't know i think that was weird and i don't know if i like jack more or less for that like yeah. i don't know but in 1953, a new trial happens, and it's a roller coaster. They find out that Dorothy, the earlier surprise witness, had mental health issues, and she had been committed to Camarillo State Hospital in 1952 um, during her mental instability, uh-huh. it says. <laughs> her psychiatrist says that she suffers from delusions and hallucinations, hmm. and she had been declared mentally unstable in 1946 when she spent several months at Camarillo. And so at that time, that meant that she had no credibility anymore. Mm-hmm. But I just want to say, let's appreciate her anyway, because even if she was delusional, she thought, thought that she saw that and she stood up for her friend eventually, or she tried to. Well, or she could have had some sort of, you know, post-war psychiatric yeah. break. Yeah. You know, like it, just because mm-hmm. she was later found to be mentally unstable doesn't right. mean that she wasn't mentally stable at the time right so i think what the in the trial the doctors were kind of like well she might have still had this back then like we don't know it could have been but it was all the way back to 46 definitely so 
Um, unfortunately, Dorothy's testimony harmed the case. And all the DA had left was the piecemeal, circumst- piecemeal mm-hmm. circumstantial evidence from before. And that wasn't enough. So did they like do a retrial because she was... That was revealed, yeah. No. Oh. Leonard was pushing for a retrial, hmm. which is um, everyone at the time thought that that was like an unhinged thing for him because he only really needed to be in prison for three years yeah. on a five-year sentence. Um, he was at San Quentin. And so um, at the time that he gets the retrial, he really probably only has one year left. Wow. And the retrial made him vulnerable to getting the death penalty. Huh. So like it would have been a better bet. Right. Yeah. Because then you're like, then you're like, oh, now you can't double jeopardy me. Yeah. <laughs> and try yeah. me exactly. again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the court is also not pleased to find out that the DA who had tried the first case, David, okay, in some some places, including the independent, he's called David Liker. Um, but in the court transcripts and every other source, it's liquor. Hmm. And it makes me laugh. David S. Liquor. <laughs> Either way. David S. Liquor. It's either so way, fun. Either way, I just want to say, S. I hardly Licker. know her. I know, right? <laughs> they were not excited to find out that the DA had been telling people that he, like, knew Leonard Kirk definitely killed Margaret and everything. Uh-huh. And so, like, and then um, the judge had also, like, given some really weird uh, non-standard instructions about circumstantial evidence to the jury. In the second trial? In the first trial. Oh, the first trial. So okay. those were reasons to overturn yeah. it. Got it. The jury in Leonard's second murder trial only took 14 minutes <gasps> to find him not guilty. Dang. Yeah. And so Time covered it again. There was like a lot more national press and uh-huh. whatever. Time like called their article, sequel. <laughs> like, <laughs> and yeah, they noted that it was a really big risk for Kirks to appeal, which I think people interpreted as like, he must be telling the truth. Yeah. But also, like, I wonder, it seems to me, just kind of going off of what we already know, that he could have just, like, waited a year and then probably, like, gone back to being a CHP officer. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, hopefully the CHP wouldn't take back someone who had been convicted convicted of second-degree murder. And maybe that's why. That, part that's of what I was going to say. Yeah. Unless, unless there's, like, something where in order to continue like, uh, having a livelihood. law enforcement, he needed to... Yeah be found not guilty um in something that's very typical for our podcast some sources said one thing and some said another thing about the interim between when leonard came back from alaska um after the war and his first trial some say that he was a chp officer that whole chunk of time and some say he like became some sort of businessman or salesman or something huh or i don't know truck farmer i don't know what it was (laughs) i don't know um but there was there are different sources about that um so even though it was a big risk for leonard to push for the second trial he did and he won and he came home leonard kirks lived out the rest of his life in santa barbara he died in 1988 46 years after margaret's death he was 82 years old while margaret only got to live to be 20. no one else was ever charged with her murder wow and the next little segment is called carpinteria is having none of it (laughs) So the people of Carpinteria were not pleased with how all this went down. They didn't like it that Margaret's death was going to stay unsolved. And there have been a lot of rumors about what might really have happened to her and why. And as the years passed, rumors in Carp got more and more intense and dark. Some people believed that Margaret's murder was linked to a hidden underworld full of dark secrets and run by powerful people. Oh, boy. Was Leonard Kirk's... (laughs) Right. They thought maybe Leonard wasn't guilty, actually, and maybe he was just a pawn in a bigger game. Mm. There were also rumors of a roadhouse or bordello somewhere towards the eastern area of Carp. Stories of secret parties and like, I know, and like (laughs) general grossness and secretive gatherings and the sex ring and like, could Margaret have been involved in that? Wow. Um, I feel like these are all such like... You know, like, it's a pawn in a bigger scheme yeah. with all the powerful, rich people. It's yeah. just like a, just a hop, skip, and a jump to lizard people. <laughs> like, these are all the same conspiracy yeah, things exactly. that we see all the time. And, like, the imagery of the murders reminds me of Twin Peaks with, um, <laughs> like, or Audrey, like, crosses the border and goes to One-Eyed Jacks and, like, gets caught up <laughs> in, like, the, you know, sex worker den or whatever and, ugh. It's an older reference, but it checks out. 
Um, so I wouldn't have suspected that carp had any of that going on. Yeah. Uh, despite the weed smell now. But um, <laughs> no answers. And weirdly enough, despite the fact that Margaret Centony's murder remains officially unsolved, it's not a cold case. Oh. Sergeant Eric Rainey of the county. Ugh, Sergeant Eric Rainey of the Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Department did once, according to Carpenteria Magazine, I didn't talk to him, um, did once confirm that there's no cold case file. Wow. So I guess it's just unsolved, but they're not going to try anymore. Because they're probably that pretty sucks. sure Kirk's did it, yeah. right? Yeah, and like that's just my assumption as to what it means to yeah. have an unsolved trial that is not a cold case. Well, yeah. Um, that it's just not open and they're not going to spend resources on it. Yeah. So... Um, yeah we know who did it we're just not we're just not gonna well, there's just nothing they can do about it yeah. yeah so that's almost it for the story but not quite i mentioned barney brandingham's 2014 opinion piece in the independent earlier and that little tiny article is what got me started on this and it's so mysterious and fascinating and it's not even really an article like i said it's just like an opinion piece mm-hmm. um barney says that he knew about the sentiny case but it wasn't like at the forefront of his mind um because of something like he used to cover court cases at the county or something like early in his career as a reporter. Oh. Mm-hmm. And he'd totally forgotten about it. But then he ran into Barry Liker or Licker. S. Liker. Yep. Who was District know. Attorney David S. Liker or Liker's son. And Barry asked him to help find out what happened to Margaret because it was a case that had always bothered his dad. Mm-hmm. Barney did look into it and he remembered it had been an open secret that the Kirk's case had been a major fumble and that like basically everyone knew Leonard Kirks was guilty, but they also knew they couldn't touch him. And so he started to look into it and people like delivered him all these weird sources of information, mm-hmm. like um, local history books that had small print runs and the, the um, issue of daring detective, which I bought a copy of. And then two other similar like pulp detective magazines that I couldn't find that covered Margaret's murder and um it's just like a tiny little short piece but so interesting and we'll link to that um despite barney bringing the case to light a few years ago in his opinion piece that seems to be it for any recent movement on the case and any coverage and really any knowledge that it happened like we hadn't heard about it yeah Um, which means that it was not well known i don't don't know (laughs) just um so i you know, everyone that was involved is dead now. So what do you do? Ugh, that just sucks, like, for her family. Yeah. Yeah. To get no closure. So yeah. that's it. That's my story. Except. Oh. Except. I have a little bit of speculation. Okay. About the coroner thing. So remember how Jack Ross had to leave the scene for a little bit mm-hmm. to get the coroner? Because it was, like, a requirement that the coroner, coroner be notified or present. To attend to Margaret's body or at least just know that there was, like, potentially a murder that had happened. Mm -hmm. Well, because, like, a cop can't, yeah, like, declare a death, right? Right. And so, yeah, at least that I found, it wasn't necessarily that the coroner had to drop everything and go to the scene. He just had to know about it. Hmm. And then, like, maybe he could send an employee or something for, like, time of death or whatever. But, um, so I found out that when Jack Ross became sheriff in 1947... He took on not just the role of sheriff, but the role of sheriff coroner. Oh. He was the first sheriff coroner in Santa Barbara County's history, and that continues to exist. Bill Brown is currently sheriff coroner of Santa Barbara County. And I didn't, I don't want our podcast to be one where I have to go talk to humans. So I did not call (laughs) them and talk and ask to talk about it. But I like to think that maybe Jack made that change intentionally, and maybe it had a little bit to do with what happened to Margaret and that she never got justice because if he hadn't had to, if he was coroner, he would have been notified. Right. He would have had to leave. Yeah. So like, I thought that was just like a standard. Like if you were the sheriff, you were the, you were the guy. I mean, it may have been, did it put coroners out of business? (laughs) Well, one, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, There's like, you know, funeral undertaker, whatever you want. Are there independent coroners? Well, I mean, there are undertakers, but there aren't like the crime like the law enforcement capacity independent coroners now. Yeah. Um, so it's a ghost. <laughs> maybe Jack decided to do something lasting about his mistake and do something so that future sheriffs wouldn't have to leave the scene to get the coroner mm-hmm. necessarily so they could keep their eye on the crime scene and evidence couldn't be destroyed. 
I don't know if that's true, but I like that as a legacy for Jack and Margaret. And uh, so on the Santa Barbara County Sheriff's website, it says Santa Barbara County has had a sheriff coroner, a sheriff coroner, Santa Barbara County has had a sheriff coroner fulfilling the coroner's responsibility since 1947. Sheriff John Ross, because Jack John became the first Santa Barbara County Sheriff coroner. So I don't know. It's the first story where I've like been pleased with law enforcement. (laughs) Like I just ended it with like, good for you, Jack. Well, and also I feel like we've run into a lot of things where it's like no significant changes were made. (laughs) Right. Any policy or procedure after this happened. So it is nice that they, you know, they felt like, oh, this one particular incident could have changed the entire outcome of this case. How can we eliminate Yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's what they did, but I can't imagine that even if someone was like, hey, everybody's changing to sheriff coroner now, we should do it too. Mm -hmm. Like, of course, Jack was going to think back to like, yeah, if I had, yeah, if I had been sheriff or like my dad had been or I don't know, Mm -hmm. just like, yeah. Also the Jack and John thing, like how does Peggy come from Margaret? I don't know. (laughs) I didn't want to admit it earlier, but you said something like, where's Peggy? And I I had a moment where I went, wait, what? What? (laughs) Did I black out? Am I listening to a different story? I know. You're on a different podcast. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, actually, I think that people think that people don't know that Peggy is short for Margaret because a couple articles changed what the what her boss, not her boss, but the elderly lady said oh. to like, where's Margaret or whatever <laughs> instead of where's Peggy? Mags. I know. Where's Mags? Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, Margs. that's it. That's didn't we know? Terrible. Why is Margs coming back in my <laughs> Is that short for Margaret? I don't it know. is now. <laughs> I hate that there's like lots of, there's weird things that are short for other things that yeah. don't make any sense. Yeah. Dick and rich. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, that one, like I got really, really into that case, obviously. And like, I feel like. I want to keep learning about it and like keep coming back to it because it just feels like, well, this is my case. Like this is the one that I care about now. But um, unfortunately, there's just nothing really else to learn except about like deeper dives into what happened. But there's, I don't know. It just bothers me that it was like the the law enforcement version of the one that got away, you know, for people for (laughs) like decades. Right. So... I feel like the obvious question for the Magic 8 Ball would be, did Kirk do it? Leonard Kirk's murder. I mean, he did it, so I don't really want to do that one because, like, I mean, allegedly he did it. But, like, what if it says no? Yeah. Yeah. The 8 Ball is fallible. Haven't we talked about that? Yeah. But what about, like, uh, no, I just don't want to do, I don't want to do the 8 Ball in murders. Okay. Can we not? Is that okay? uh, Unsolved? Yeah. Or unresolved. Like Kim Morgan yeah. bothered me. Yeah, let's not yeah. do it. That's okay. Unless we could talk about like, um, I don't know. Will it ever be solved or oh, something? Or I don't know. Can we do that? Yeah. Does that sure. work? Will Margaret's family ever get <laughs> closure? Closure. That's a good one. Okay. Magic 8-Ball says... You want to hand it to me? It's so hard to read. <laughs> Reply hazy. Try again. Uh. Seems fitting. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, right? That's Just like... going to leave like, it at that. They tried the trial That could again. have been the verdict. <laughs> yeah. Man. Yes, definitely. Well, I don't know. Okay. I'd say it's still pretty hazy. Yeah. yeah. All oh, right. Oh, boy. Well, thanks for listening. Thanks for the story, Summer. We, uh, we're... I don't know whether you want to say this or not, but, like... We have had a continuous upsweep of more listeners, so we just want to thank you all for joining in, and yes, it makes us, it pleases us a lot. Yes, every little one. Yeah, <laughs> we're just delighted. So we thanks. say we say that like we would do this even if we were the only people listening, <laughs> but it does make us happy to know you're out there. So. Yeah, and it helps my daily dopamine hits to see our analytics growing and everything it's really nice it's fun so, so um please listening. subscribe if yeah. you haven't yet subscribe tell your friends we love we love it say hey on the socials yeah, yeah. send us your stories we're lonely <laughs> yes we we would love to uh have stories from listeners uh 
those Santa Barbara peeps that if you know of something, if you've heard a story, you'd love for us to, yeah, if you've seen a ghost, (laughs) if you work somewhere that's haunted, if you uh, are a ghost, if you are a ghost, (laughs) send us an email. (laughs) If you can physically touch the keys, I'm tired. Send us a ticker tape. (laughs) Or wait, no, ticker tape is the noun. Send us a teletype. Mess, hit us up on the eight ball. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Ghoul's Guide to Santa Barbara. Like and subscribe on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ghoul's Guide to SB. Our website is ghoulsguidetosb.com. Got a spooky story or know of a haunted or paranormal location in Santa Barbara? Send it to us at ghoulsguidetosb at gmail.com.